Um, I think in general what I've learned is that um, a patient may be saying that they're refusing to have a feeding tube, for example, mm-hmm. um, and they need that because they're very underweight and malnutritioned and mm-hmm. they're going to die if they don't get some nutrition. Um, and the psychiatry team assesses that patient and they understand and realize that they don't have capacity to refuse that treatment. They're not able to understand so the risk. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. And so once you get that expert psychiatrist um, to the table and they can really make that determination, um, then it's going to the decision maker and saying, you know, would you want to consent for this procedure of a feeding tube? Mm-hmm. Here's the risks and the benefits. Um, you know, what would you want for your loved one? And if they're consenting to it, um, we would proceed with that procedure. Even, you know, with the patient verbally saying they don't want it, they're just not in a place where they really understand what they're even saying. Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. All right, we have made it to episode 25 of the podcast. Yay! I genuinely love making these podcasts for you all. And I feel so honored that I get to support and empower so many thousands of nurses through my stories. And I have so many more stories that I can't wait to share with you. The challenge is finding a time when my house is quiet enough to record. As you'll hear in this episode, My kids were still awake when I recorded this interview, and you can hear them living their best lives in the background. Currently, it is 1 a.m., and my kids and my husband are in bed, and I can finally sit down and edit the podcast that I recorded with my guest two days ago. I said all that to say, it is a sacrifice of time and sleep on my part to keep making episodes, but it is such a joy for me to give back to the profession that has brought me so much life. It's worth all the hours I've spent making these 25 episodes, knowing that it is helping so many nurses feel more confident and competent when we're caring for patients. I would love to help even more nurses. So if you love this podcast, if it has helped you be a better nurse, could you take a moment to rate and review the show? On Apple Podcasts, you just have to scroll down to the bottom of the list of episodes and hit the write a review button. And for Spotify, I think it's towards the top, like by the podcast icon. Taking the two minutes to do that not only helps me, but it helps your fellow nurses find this podcast as well. So thank you for listening, for sharing this with your friends, and for your support. All right, let's dive into the interview. On today's episode, I hope to answer several of the questions I get from my listeners about the legal and ethical aspects of nursing that are so very gray. But to help me answer these tough questions, I invited an expert to the show who deals with issues like this day in and day out in her role as the Director of Patient Safety and Quality. So Rebecca is a real gem of a human. You can sense her genuine empathy for others, both patients and healthcare providers. Within just a few minutes of speaking to her, I've sat across from her at many meetings and heard her eloquently bring it all back to the patient, and I love that about her. Our hospital is a better place because of her, and I am so happy to get to share with you as well. So Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, Rebecca, can you just start by explaining what exactly your role is in the hospital and how you impact patient care? Sure. So, I get the opportunity to deal with um, difficult situations. I would say that on the patient safety side of what I do. Um, so, we're always looking to improve patient care. Um, that's also part of the quality piece. So, we're really looking at um, our door to needle time for our stroke patients, trying to make sure that not that we're just meeting the below 60 minute benchmark, but how low can we get that? Because we know the better our times are, the better it is for the patient. So we're constantly bringing that back to the patient when we're meeting and looking at the data. Um, it's much more than just numbers for us. So it's very exciting work. And we've been on a journey for several years, um, really looking at our leapfrog scores at the hospital mm -hmm. and getting us to a place where our patients are the safest. So it's a never ending journey, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. Um, and then what has led you to this point? Like, what, how did you decide, like, you know what? I want to be the director of patient safety and quality. <laughs> I think it was just a calling, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, I got my MBA in healthcare administration, okay. and I initially thought I was going to be inpatient care myself as a PA or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of shadowing, and I found that that wasn't really for me. Okay. Um, but I did love the hospital setting, and I loved helping people. Yeah, and clearly. so I found myself being pulled into risk management, um, into quality, because they needed help at the time, and I just loved it. And I've always loved it. Um, and I just keep excelling at it and inspiring others. So I think it's just been a good role for me. Um, and it wasn't what I was initially looking for. So it found you. Um, yeah, it kind of found me, and I'm, I'm really glad that it did. What would you say is the most rewarding part of the work that you do every day? I think the most rewarding part is really taking something that's an extremely difficult situation um, where you have a family member or a patient that has lost hope or they're just not able to figure out how to move forward and you're able to intervene by pulling in maybe a bioethics committee, um, pulling resources, things that that person may not know existed and being able to help them find a resolution um, that changes their life. Awesome. So a frequent legal and ethical dilemma that I face a lot, and I know that my listeners do too because I get their emails about it, is what am I to do when the patient is refusing interventions that I know that they need to save their life? Like this issue really was brought to light at the height of COVID when so many patients and families had to quickly decide their code status and they had never even considered it prior. So here's the situation that I face literally every other day with the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. um, so the patient would be a full code. They had escalated their care rather quickly from nasal cannula to heated high flow, and their oxygen saturation was still dropping. Now they need BiPAP, and they're refusing it. Or even worse, they need to be intubated, and they're like fighting us saying, I don't want it, I don't want it. The patient is awake enough to speak clearly and oriented times four, but adamantly refusing respiratory intervention, even though just yesterday they wanted everything done. Mm -hmm. The hard part is their PaO2 or oxygen levels like 30 or 40. So I know that hypoxia is impairing their ability to reason, but what is the nurse to do? Like the patient's adamantly refusing this. What is our legal and ethical responsibility in responding to patients um, that don't consent to the intervention we're offering? Yeah, that's a tough subject. I get those questions too. It's certainly a case by case basis. I don't think you can make a blanket statement that covers every patient. Um, I do think in general, um, especially during COVID with what you're describing in that situation, I got some of those calls as well. Um, I think it's important to get the family's feedback of what that person would have wanted 
Um, it's also important to call the physician or provider, whoever you're working with. Let them know the indicators that you're seeing that are making you as a nurse or a practitioner question whether this patient in this very moment um, really does have the capacity to make that decision to refuse. Um, and it's challenging because of it's usually time sensitive. Yeah. Um, that's the hardest part of it. But what we really want to make sure of is that a patient's not refusing something just because they're hypoxic right. um, in that moment. And they may have had capacity a couple hours ago, but that obviously changes. Mm -hmm. So if you're seeing that, I would recommend that there's a call made to that practitioner. You're letting them know what you're seeing. Um, if they can assess the patient, that's ideal and document that the patient doesn't have capacity at that time. Um, and then you would go down the pathway of who is that patient's decision maker. Um, it's always great if they have an advanced directive that tells you, you know, who that person would be. Um, so you're honoring their wishes. But as you know, sometimes we don't have that documentation. Um, and I get those calls quite a bit too. So when we don't have that documentation, at least in the state of Florida, which is where I've had most of my time spent, we would use the Florida statute to guide us. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty clear for us, which is great. So it really goes down, and I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's pretty much, um, if there's not an advanced directive, it goes to the patient's spouse um, to be the decision maker. If there's no spouse, it's adult children. Um, sometimes we've had cases where there's 10 adult children that want to <laughs> be involved, um, and we would do a majority rules type of situation. Mm -hmm. um, we'd pull them together and try to help them come to a decision. And then the statute goes down further into like aunts, uncles, more extended family, like cousins. And at the very end, there is an option for a friend. So if the, that patient has no family, you could use a friend um, with like an affidavit. Yeah. Um, that person that's really been caring for them maybe, and maybe all their other family has passed or they're estranged from them. So using that statute does give us some guidance in the state of Florida at least um, of who would be the decision maker. So hopefully we're getting all of that figured out um, if we can before the patient's in a place where they don't have capacity and, and that way we know who they wanted to make their decisions. Right. So if the patient was very clear hours ago, they were a full coat, they want everything done, and now they're in hypoxic state, they're saying, no, no, don't do it anymore. Would you say it's our ethical responsibility to just document that they are not in capacity to make that um, decision and to go with what they had previously said whenever they were in with their full capacities? That's a tough question because I think it's most likely in your role being a rapid response person the timing of that is going to be quite challenging. Right. <laughs> That's the hardest part of that. I would always say we want to honor the patient's wishes so if you have that written down before the patient becomes hypoxic, I would definitely follow that. Mm -hmm. um, not every patient's going to have that. Right. So if you don't know their wishes, um, I would advise that we like go with the Move family. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah, so that we're honoring whatever they wanted. So that's really it. I know we have a lot of conflicts um, with family members. Uh, we did have the one case where we had a family with 10 adult children um, and the patient couldn't speak for themselves, so we did actually pull an entire team together to try to help those 10 children make a decision. It's very mm -hmm. hard to let mom go, mm -hmm. um, and f it would be for me as well, so I definitely empathize with them. Um, that was a very tough case, but luckily, um, after a lot of work with getting everyone together, the mm -hmm. providers, talking about the prognosis, 
um, it was amazing. Every single one of the children decided to um, go with, you know, let's go ahead and let mom go. Um, mm-hmm. They were believers in Christianity, and mm-hmm. they kind of came to peace with that. Mm-hmm. And they did decide to go with hospice care, and they extubated mm-hmm. her. And they were all at peace with it, which is great. And that's the ideal scenario. Yeah. Um, and a really tough place to get when you have that many people and that many opinions. Um, but that particular person just didn't have any of that written down ahead of time. So I think if you're listening to this right now and you haven't thought about, you know, end of life and you may be young, um, you may have not thought about that at all. It is good to just think about what you would want if something were to happen to you. Um, Get your advanced directive in your state. There's usually forms online um, and just write that down because I think one of the hardest things I see is the family when they don't know what their loved one wanted and they're trying to figure that out and they're suffering already because so much has happened to their loved one and now they're trying to make these decisions and they just don't know what their loved one would have wanted. So, Have you ever had a case where, maybe not from hypoxia, but from some other reason, the patient was incapacitated to really speak for themselves and that you had to kind of step in and help facilitate the medical team and the family working mm-hmm. together to come to a good decision? I have. I've had the opportunity um, quite a bit, so I feel very blessed with that. It's challenging, but it's also very rewarding. Um, we've had a few cases where we've had patients that are under a Baker Act. That's what we call it in Florida. Um, in other states, it would have a different term, but it's an involuntary hold um, for psychiatric reasons. So I've had patients that don't have capacity and um, they're coming in and they're they're refusing care and they're really not in a place to refuse it. And so we have um, great providers and a lot of times I'll coordinate with our psychiatry team on those particular cases um, because they are so expert Mm -hmm. in the mental health realm and try to figure out what can we do to help this patient um, either relax or understand. Sometimes a loved one helps to be present for those types of cases. It just depends on the patient and what they're going through. Um, but I've had one particular patient that um, comes to mind when you ask that question. Um, just an amazing, amazing story. He really was very mentally ill mm-hmm. um, acutely, and we had the opportunity to really sit down um, with his family and talk about his journey, his mm-hmm. story, um, the struggles they had been through after different care teams, different facilities, and um, they got help, but it just wasn't the help that really he needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so our team really pulled together. Um, I think there's about 10 of us interdisciplinary, and we actually, um, I pulled the family in to that meeting because I wanted everybody to hear that journey and the suffering and the story so we could figure out how to help him the best because he had been through so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were very lucky that um, we did a lot of treatment with him. Mm-hmm. Um, we came up with the care plans for when he was refusing things, interventions or treatments, and how we were going to manage that. Um, and the family was on board, especially his decision maker. So he actually got much better. Um, and it was really neat to see him. He um, was very thin when he came in, mm-hmm. extremely underweight. And when he left our facility, he was healthy again. He was able to go back to work. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of an amazing recovery. but. I think the reason that it worked so well is because that team really pulled together with the family, which was the right thing for that particular case, um, and figure out how can we help, you know, this family today. Um, They've been through a lot and they have some special needs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will tell you, it was a journey with the refusals of care. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because when you... So, like, what was he refusing that we had Mm -hmm. to say, no, you have to have this, even though it's a... 
it's against your wishes. Sure. <laughs> so we're still always taught to go with the patient's wishes, but what mm-hmm. if their wishes are not in their best interest? Yeah, so when I talk to um psychiatry team over my journey of doing this job over the last 11 years, um, I think in general what I've learned is that um, a patient may be saying that they're refusing to have a feeding tube, for example, mm-hmm. um, and they need that because they're very underweight and malnutritioned and mm-hmm. they're going to die if they don't get some nutrition. Um, and the psychiatry team assesses that patient and they understand and realize that they don't have capacity to refuse that treatment. They're not able to understand so the risk. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. And so once you get that expert psychiatrist um, to the table and they can really make that determination, um, then it's going to the decision maker and saying, you know, would you want to consent for this procedure of a feeding tube? Mm-hmm. Here's the risks and the benefits. Um, you know, what would you want for your loved one? And if they're consenting to it, um, we would proceed with that procedure. Even, you know, with the patient verbally saying they don't want it, they're just not in a place where they really understand what they're even saying about that. Um, so that's very hard. It's very hard for all the caregivers when something like that happens. And I have had times where um, I've had our psychiatrists have a direct conversation with another uh, proceduralist or physician um, to discuss that topic um, because it is quite challenging. And everybody's trying to do the right thing. You right, know? right. Um, but for that particular patient, their needs are a little bit different than maybe one of just our, our medical patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I think this role is really impactful is pulling in some of those resources and really working with the experts and depending on what it is you know pulling the family to the table mm-hmm. um, because they're really trying to understand too and it's that partnership of how mm-hmm. do we reach the end goal what is the end goal with this right yeah Rebecca I really love that story because um, it actually turned out well bring the team together made for a good outcome for the patient a really beautiful example of how advocating for the patient when they can't even advocate for themselves. Um, I'm glad we get to witness miracles like that at the hospital. So I definitely saw some patients who initially refused BiPAP, but then they ended up, we just kind of sedated them and helped them keep the BiPAP on and ended up turning the corner and getting better. So I've definitely mm-hmm. seen that happen. Um, just to review from the next question. So as long as we can medically prove that the patient is incapacitated due to a medication administration that we gave or a medical condition, as long as we can prove they're incapacitated, we can proceed with their previous wishes and like err on the side of full code or err on the side of intervention um, if they're not able to actually speak for that in this moment. So what about um, when patients can't speak for themselves, but the family has conflicting opinions about what to do? That's a very good topic as well. It does come up. Um, I think sometimes patients, they write down their wishes, but they don't have a conversation with their family Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Um, And so there is conflict um, where they're not able to speak anymore. Um, So I'm not a lawyer by background, but I do have the opportunity to work with a lot of lawyers. So my recommendation would be to pull in, you know, a legal person on your team um, to get feedback when there's a conflict like that. Um, What we typically go with is we err on the side of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we have any kind of conflict between the patient family or between family members, um, I will contact our legal team and we will go with the life choice, whatever that is, until we get a little bit more clarity. Okay. And typically we're pulling the family together and having a family meeting with the practitioners because oftentimes they don't all have the same information. 
-hmm. And that's part of why someone's, um, they're not on the same page, whether it be DNR or full code. And so pulling them all together and giving them the same information a lot of times helps as like a first step. But if they're still in disagreement, um, we would go with, you know, on air on the side of life and, and your legal team may may feel differently about that, but that's been my experience in this role. Yeah. What I've seen a lot is you have like the one family member who's at the hospital and they're calling everyone else, giving them updates, but it's like, you know, the telephone game where the kind of the message changes and then as it being interpreted through the lens of someone who doesn't work in healthcare and so the message that everyone's getting isn't the exact message that the healthcare team wants to convey to the family. So I love that bringing everyone mm-hmm. in, putting them all on the same table, all on the same page, excuse me, everyone at the table, um, really helps the family make the best decision for for your loved one. So I know a lot of nurses, including myself, want to do what's right for the patient and follow the wishes of the family. But when it comes to documenting, I find myself torn between writing too much information and potentially giving lawyers something to jump on and writing too little and not really painting an accurate picture of what went down. So do you have any advice from a risk manager perspective on what to include or not include in our documentation um, when a patient's decline like unexpectedly or when something goes wrong? So for example, let's say as a nurse, I walk in and I find my patient agonal breathing and they were just talking to me 30 minutes ago. What types of things would you want to find on the chart to really paint a picture of what happened? And what types of things would you absolutely not want us to document ever? <laughs> <laughs> um, so not documenting, I feel like it's, <laughs> it's easier for me to start with. Um, so we have incident reports, right. it may be called different things at different facilities, but that's what we call them. Um, I would not want that information documented in the medical record. Um, that so is never say, incident report filled out. Yes. Or Please see the incident report. Um, our incident reports, at least the last few facilities I've worked at, they're part of a patient safety organization. Um, that's a federal law that was passed several years ago. And so that information is protected. And not that anyone's trying to you know, hide anything. It's just a way to keep the communication open and honest between the facility so everyone is really looking to what can we do better. And they're really using those reports as a tool um, to improve patient care. So by putting something in the record that references an incident report, um, it can mess with the discoverability of that information. And so that's the reason why um, I do not want that in the medical record. Um, as far as what to put in there, I think it's good to always paint a picture of what you saw, what you did about it, and keep it factual. Um, it's not good to blame anyone else. Those are some of the hardest cases I've had to deal with is where there's a lot of finger pointing. I mean, at the end of the day, beginning of the day, we're all on the same team. We're mm-hmm. all here for the same reason to take care of the patient. Um, sometimes things happen and we didn't expect it. Um, it's difficult to deal with, but blaming each other is is not going to help in any capacity. Um, I think when you're putting things in the medical record, make sure that it's just something that is factual that two, three years down the road, you know, if you were pulled into some kind of legal case, it would help you as a caregiver remember Mm -hmm. and give credit to the work that you did. Um, So I think that's probably the most high level summary I could Mm -hmm. give you. Um, I do get to work with um, legal cases I've had the opportunity to that for years and um, the hardest thing I think when we get into those cases is everyone's nervous and they're scared and they're trying to remember what they did and I want to show that you as a nurse I know you did a great job but I just want to show that 
if you saw a patient like that that's agonal breathing, what did you do about it? Mm-hmm. You assessed them, you called the right people in, a rapid response team, code blue, whatever's appropriate at your facility, but you got whatever that patient needed and you escalated it appropriately. So those are the things that I'm really looking for. And most attorneys, in my opinion, are looking for that too. What would a reasonable person do um, with this information, seeing this? And sometimes it's hard um, because we're so busy caring for the patient to get all of that in the record. And then two or three years down the road, you know, we're trying to remember that. um, And some people move into different careers. They just don't remember and it, it becomes challenging. Okay, so just painting a picture of, this is what I saw, this is what I did, this is mm-hmm. how I escalated the situation, yeah. but not ever saying, and it was because of this person neglected the XYZ right. thing, yeah. but anyway, and never ever say, see incident report or incident report was placed. Got it. Yeah. Um, so, are there any common mistakes that you see with regards to documentation, like, or, or even not common? Are there any mistakes you've seen that you're like, hey, nurses out there listening, don't do this? <laughs> Um, I think one of the things I get to work with our regulatory agencies too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so oftentimes when they're coming in, they're looking at an entire medical record. Mm -hmm. And so usually as a nurse, you're taking care of a patient for one, maybe two or three shifts, you Mm -hmm. know, those 12 hours. But when you're looking at a medical record for weeks or months, Mm -hmm. um, it is quite different. And one of the things I see kind of trended over that time is just inconsistencies like in assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can see where I may have like a pressure ulcer that's staged as a four one day mm-hmm. and the next day it's staged as a two. Um, and so really good wound healing. <laughs> yeah. That would be great if we could do it that quickly. Yeah. But as you know, it's unlikely that we're having a massive change like that. Um, and in the state, you know, they know that as well. So they're beginning to ask about, you know, why is there such a discrepancy here? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the handoff communication that's happening from shift to shift, mm-hmm. bedside shift report, which we know is the best practice, mm-hmm. and really making sure that we're all on the same page of, you know, why is this patient here? Because the more that you're talking to that prior shift, you're really getting more of the story. And I think the assessments align much better. Um, so yeah, when I'm looking over that long period of time, I find myself helping the surveyors understand, um, even with our medical record system, there's some opportunities Mm -hmm. um, to make it easier for the bedside caregiver. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do explain that, but there are um, definitely with pressure ulcers, I would say that's one of the things, um, falls is another topic that I think all hospitals are working on to eliminate, Um, Mm -hmm. definitely falls with injury. And sometimes you'll see, you know, high fall risk and low fall risk, but you can't really tell that there's any condition change. So I'm trying to figure out, well, why? What happened Mm -hmm. here? Um, So painting that picture of the why and making the assessments line up is very helpful. Good. That's good advice. So Rebecca, we've talked a lot about the legal aspects of nursing. What about like the ethical challenges? I mean, are there any particular ethical challenges that you've faced or been a part of in your role and any advice or wisdom on how you can resolve those? Um, I know one that I've seen a lot is where the family wants to continue um, care indefinitely. And I know these types of cases have been in the news as well, but like what is the hospital's role in honoring this family's wishes, even though we all know we're just torturing this patient and Mm -hmm. prolonging their life, prolonging their suffering. There's absolutely no way they're going to recover. Like how have you handled that in your role? Because I know in the bedside nurse's role, 
feel like our hands are tied and we're mm -hmm. kind of waiting for someone to step in and help help us advocate and really speak to the family and help them hear what we're trying to say. Any yeah. advice or wisdom on that one? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough topic. Um, it definitely comes up. It's definitely come up in my career. So I would say for us, um, a bioethics consult is helpful. Um, we have a team at the facility I'm working at now where we pull an interdisciplinary group together. Um, doctors, case managers, nurses, the chaplain, um, kind of pull them all, talk about the case. If it's appropriate, bring in the family. Some family doesn't want to participate. Um, I think it's ideal in those cases for them to be there mm -hmm. um, if they can be and really talk about the prognosis of that patient. Um, I think sometimes, especially when we had COVID and the visitation was limited, yeah. um, these family members are getting calls and updates and they're not seeing their loved one. They haven't seen them decline and we're all learning about COVID together. So it's, it's an unknown. And mm -hmm. so I think we did a lot of FaceTiming with iPads. So at least there was some you know, visual contact for the families, but still that was not enough at, right. at times. Um, so I think the visitation is helpful if it's appropriate for the family to see their loved one, because a lot of times there has been a change in status and they just haven't actually witnessed that yet. And then the bioethics team is helpful because you have everyone around that person to know, we care about you, we care about your loved one, we're all here to try to answer your questions and come to a conclusion. Um, if that family member is the decision maker and they still want everything done for that patient, even though maybe the care is futile from the perspective of the providers, um, it's ideal to kind of figure out what do you see long-term for this patient? Yeah. Are they going to go to like a long-term care type of facility where they're going to continue in this state? Um, and what does that look like? Is that a year that they'll live in this state, 10 years, and just try to help them think about that future um, life. And is that what the patient would have wanted? Um, so hopefully that's written down, because I do think if it's written down, um, the family has an easier time making some of those tough choices mm -hmm. either way, um, whether they choose life or to allow the patient to pass. Um, but I would say that is a very challenging topic, um, definitely during COVID, but pulling everyone together is is probably the best advice I would have um, and some sometimes it doesn't it doesn't help I'm just being transparent yeah. it doesn't help but I would say most of the time we've had good results and I think you have to look at your care team and try to help figure out who are the key players that are gonna make a difference for that patient yeah. so sometimes for us the chaplain is critical mm -hmm. um, you may not think that <laughs> sitting listening to this right now but that person has the empathy it can really sit yeah. down and allow some grief counseling and things that help someone get to a place where they're comfortable saying you know what this this isn't what my mother or father would have wanted I, I want to let them pass I feel at peace now yeah. um, so it's interesting the different players and knowing the patient and the family and their needs I think really help make sure on your team whoever your bioethics team is you've got the right resources to help them yeah Another couple cases I've been a part of, the family kind of takes like the, like defensive or, I don't know if it's either way. They're trying to like defend their decision to mm -hmm. keep their loved one alive, mm -hmm. and so bringing the chaplain is a really valuable tool because sometimes the family almost needs to be given permission 
by someone with some sort of like spiritual authority to like it's okay Mm -hmm. you don't have to keep fighting we don't have to keep waiting for a miracle like it's okay to let them go peacefully and for whatever reason sometimes they can't hear it from the doctor even from the nurse but when the chaplain steps in and says that like oh okay well i guess i guess it is all right to do that one meeting i went to this patient was just so sick and so swollen and so miserable and the condition they have, every time they were touched or simulated, they'd have a seizure. Mm. So as a nurse, it was so heartbreaking to care for the patient because if they were incontinent, I knew that if I went and started simulating them to change them and clean them, which I want to, they'd start seizing and then they're even more miserable. So we ultimately called in the bioethics committee and talked with the family. And at first they were super like, no, we're, we are gonna keep waiting for a miracle. God's gonna heal mom, et cetera. Um, but after talking with the chaplain and the whole team, the nurse is kind of sharing, we, we care so much about your loved one and it's breaking our hearts to see her suffering. When they could hear that and not just us saying, we should stop, we should stop this. They kind of, they softened up to the idea and eventually uh, we moved towards hospice and palliative care, which was a relief for all of us because we felt so bad caring for this poor woman. But yeah, so at what point do you feel like the nurse should say, hey, can we get the bioethics committee? on board like when do you when, when is that point so I think I mean it's a little different with every patient yeah. I think when you have a conflict end of life um, that's a really good time to bring in that team mm-hmm. or at least ask if it's appropriate at your facility every team may have a different criteria depending mm-hmm. on where you're at um, I think anytime you get that gut where you just feel like this doesn't feel right. I think that scenario you just described is a great one mm-hmm. um, because you're doing what that patient needs, keeping them clean, making sure they don't have skin breakdown and the care you would want for your loved one if mm-hmm. they're incontinent. Unfortunately, every time you're touching them, they're having this awful seizure and mm-hmm. there's no way really around that. And that's something inside of you, Sarah, is saying this doesn't feel right. I don't, right. I don't like this. I don't know that this is appropriate. So if you're getting that gut feeling, I think that's always a great time to bring up an opportunity of, can we bring in someone else? Can we have a family meeting? Um, our case management team does a great job of having those family meetings. And again, sometimes it's just a disconnect. The family doesn't understand mm-hmm. that every time you're cleaning someone up, they're having this awful seizure and pain and suffering. And so it's really painting that picture from a place of empathy mm-hmm. and we want them to get better, but you know, their prognosis is this. And so we really need to partner with you to figure out how are we gonna continue care right. for this patient. And I think you, that's the key where there is coming out of a place of empathy. Mm-hmm. I feel like families, maybe they assume like, oh, we need the bed really bad, or we're trying to get them out of here. And like, that is, well, we may need the bed. That is never our motivation, right? We're just right. thinking, oh, we don't wanna keep inducing suffering to this poor person that we know is not gonna actually sure. help. Like, I'm happy to, start an IV, even though that's suffering on someone, knowing that through the IV I can administer life-saving drugs, right? right? But I don't want to keep poking and poking and poking someone who it's just going to be futile. And that's heartbreaking as someone who wants to help, mm-hmm. to feel like you're not actually helping. Yeah, I agree. We all went into this business, I think, to help people. Right. You know, that's where our passion lies, and it's hard to see someone, and you're, you're doing the things you're trained to do, but it's causing so much additional suffering. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's when you're going to start getting that kind of gut feeling that... Mm-hmm. This doesn't feel ethical to me, mm-hmm. and it's a good time to raise your hand and say, can we talk more about this? That's good. So final question for you. What has been the best piece of advice that was given to you that's helped you in your role? 
I think the best um, advice I've had is to do the right thing for the patient and everything else will follow. And I've found that to be true with everything that I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it feels right to do the right thing for the patient. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you're aligned with that, everyone else is too. Mm-hmm. And even if you have disagreements amongst the care team, amongst the family, the focal point being the patient helps everyone come to, let's get on the same page, let's have a plan for this patient. We want to do the right thing. So I think that's been the best advice. Um, definitely helped me be successful with very difficult situations. Um, I would recommend it to, to anyone <laughs> to, to keep that as your focal point. That's good. That's really good. Well, Rebecca, I think we could talk for hours about all the complicated legal and ethical issues that you have seen. But I think the ones you've shared today really shed some light on some vague and not very well-defined rules for us. So it's been really helpful. Thank you. Um, I've always loved talking with you, and I'm so glad my listeners will get to benefit from your experience and expertise in this area. So thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Hey, guys. I just wanted to take a minute to summarize some of the pearls of wisdom from Rebecca. So first... We always follow the patient's wishes. If they are unable to express their wishes or they don't have the capacity to do that due to illness or injury or medications on board, we would need to reach out to the family to clarify what they think the patient's wishes are. She shared some great examples of when a patient was too hypoxic or too depressed to think rationally about what their wishes were. And in those cases, we need to have a provider document that the patient does not have the capacity to make their own care decisions, and then we would go off what the family wishes. Next, when documenting, never be afraid to document what you saw or what you walked into, but choosing your words carefully so you don't blame anyone with what you write. Just state the facts and what you did about it. How did you escalate? How did you advocate? Who did you call? And If something happened that necessitated an incident report, definitely fill one out, but do not write in the medical record that an incident report was filled out. And finally, if your gut says that what's going on just doesn't feel right, don't just keep going along with it if it doesn't feel right to you. Speak up, ask your nurse leader or the physician if this situation could benefit from a family meeting or maybe even a bioethics committee. Involve the chaplain early. So the family already has a relationship with them so that when that meeting does happen, they feel comfortable with them already. Don't be afraid to explain to the family exactly what the interventions that are required to sustain the patient's life, like what that would entail. Obviously be sensitive to where they're coming from, have compassion for the difficult decisions they're having to make, and come alongside them, making sure they know that you care about their loved one too. The nurse plays a vital role in communicating with the family about what their options are. If all they're hearing are the interventions that are needed, they're likely not going to suggest shifting the goals of care to a more palliative option rather than curative options. The family sometimes just needs to be given permission to choose to let their loved one pass peacefully. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. 
If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsermpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponserm.com.